It will be a true crime takeover in San Jose, California on Thursday, February 22nd. Hi, this is Esther, host of Once Upon a Crime. I will be co-hosting a podcast listener meetup with two legends in true crime podcasting, Justin and Aaron from the Generation Y. Come on out to the V-Bar at Hotel Valencia on Santana Row to have a drink, take some selfies, and talk true crime with us and other true crime podcast fans. No tickets are required. Just show up and bring your best partners in true crime to enjoy a fun night out with us beginning at 6 p.m. Go to our events page at truecrimepodcast.com for more information, and we'll see you there. This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This month, we're taking a peek at royal families. What secrets and scandals lie behind these noble houses? In this week's episode, I'll tell you about an illicit affair an heir to the British throne engaged in with a French courtesan during World War I. She would hold evidence of her royal affair over the prince and later use it when she was on trial for the murder of a second prince. This is a fascinating story about royals behaving badly you've probably never heard before. This is the story of Edward, the Prince of Wales, and the courtesan, Marguerite Elevere. In the heart of Paris on a chilly December day in 1890, Marguerite Alibert entered the world. She began life in modest circumstances, but always had grand aspirations. Born to Fermin Alibert, a coachman, and Marie Arand, a charwoman, Marguerite's upbringing gave her a glimpse of the luxury she yearned to call her own. The Alibers did not have a life of affluence, but spent time in service to the Parisian elite. The proximity to an experience outside of her means ignited in Marguerite a fervent desire for more than a life of poverty and servitude. From her earliest days, Marguerite's luminous beauty, with her petite frame, long auburn hair, porcelain skin, and captivating dark eyes, was viewed by her family as her ticket to a way out of her humble beginnings. With a willful and headstrong personality, she displayed the strength and fortitude to achieve her dreams. However, tragedy would soon cast its shadow over her once bright horizon. In 1905, the loss of her four-year-old brother was a cruel twist of fate that forever altered the trajectory of Marguerite's life. The teen had been left in charge of her younger brother, and he'd wandered out into the street and was fatally struck by a lorry. Blamed by her grieving parents for the tragic accident, Marguerite was sent away to the Sisters of Mary, a Catholic boarding school, weighed down by the burden of guilt and shame. Within the somber confines of the convent, Marguerite was repeatedly castigated by the nuns, who said her brother's death was as a result of her sinful nature. She must have felt a great sense of shame for his death, because later in life, she'd tell people that her brother had died in the Great War. Marguerite did benefit somewhat from her time with the Sisters of Mary. She received a smattering of education and learned to sing. 
A talented mezzo-soprano, she would later capitalize on her gift of song to stand out from the crowd. The nuns placed Marguerite as a domestic servant in the home of Henri-Jules Langlois, an attorney and his family. As a young girl, Marguerite displayed a mercurial temperament. Being shamed by her family and the nuns had forced her into a life of servitude, the very thing she'd fought against her whole life, and caused her rebellious nature to surface. In 1906, at the age of 16, Marguerite became pregnant. The father's identity has never been confirmed, and Marguerite would tell several stories about her child's paternity. In one account, he was the teenage son of an English nobleman named André Montclair. She said they were in love, but his family wouldn't permit him to wed a poor French girl. In another tale, she said the baby's father was a struggling art student at a local university who could not afford to support a wife and child. In either case, the pregnant teen gave birth to a healthy baby girl she named Raymond. Marguerite was promptly expelled from the boarding school and sent home. Her family, unable to support another child, found a family who ran a farm in the French countryside. The couple agreed to raise the baby. Marguerite was thrown out of her family home and struck out to make a living in Paris. To survive, 16-year-old Marguerite began working in the sex trade in the city streets. At this time, Paris offered a bustling nightlife, including bars, nightclubs, gambling, and brothels. Marguerite began at the bottom of the sex trade, walking the streets at night to offer her services. But there was no denying that Marguerite was a beauty, and she soon realized that her looks could garner her a higher price than most girls who shared her plight. She began showcasing her talents as a singer in nightclubs to attract a higher class of customer. This set her apart from other girls, and she became a favorite of the city's wealthier clientele. Soon, her beauty and talent were noticed by Madame Denart. Madame Denart ran a high-class Parisian brothel. Her clients included wealthy business owners, bankers, and officials. She offered to take Marguerite under her wing and teach her to act like a lady. Discovering how much money she could make under Madame Denart's management, Marguerite became a quick study. Years later, Denart would describe Marguerite as, quote, the mistress of nearly all my best clients, gentlemen of wealth and position in France, England, America, and other countries. It was me that made a sort of lady of her, end quote. Marguerite reinvented herself from a homeless teenage streetwalker to a high-class courtesan who sold her services to dozens of wealthy men. She became skilled at finding benefactors who would pay her a substantial amount for the exclusive rights to her bed. In 1907, 17-year-old Marguerite met 40-year-old André Meller, a wealthy wine merchant. Meller was married, but at that time, it was acceptable in Parisian society for affluent men to court or even live openly with their mistresses. Meller wanted Marguerite for his own, so he purchased an apartment for her where they could carry on their affair in secret. Marguerite, who'd always aspired to live the lifestyle of the upper class, began calling herself Marguerite Meller, claiming Meller was her husband. With the money provided by her wealthy boyfriend, Marguerite began dressing in the latest fashions and furnished her apartment with all the trappings of a privileged lady. But she continued her work as a courtesan. She enjoyed the attention and the money she earned, and she was still in high demand. But she and Meller engaged in violent fights due to his jealousy and her temper. In 1913, the relationship ended. In addition to keeping the apartment in Paris, Marguerite received 200,000 francs from her lover, which would be considered a fortune today. 
but she was angry with herself for accepting such a, quote, paltry sum and vowed she'd never let a man get away so cheaply again. With a permanent place to live and enough money to support herself well, Marguerite sent for her daughter, Raymond. She hadn't seen the child, now age seven, since soon after her birth. Mother and daughter were reunited in Paris. Marguerite planned to raise her daughter in a manner that would earn her a place in Parisian society. To this end, she enrolled Raymond in a London boarding school to receive a top-notch education. Now in her early 20s, Marguerite was living the life of a well-to-do Parisian lady. She had the services of a driver and a maid, wore the latest fashions, and continued dating wealthy men who took her on luxury trips, wined and dined her in the best restaurants, and bought her expensive gifts. In 1917, Marguerite managed to capture the attention of one of the most powerful men in Europe, Edward, the Prince of Wales, heir to the British throne. Born on June 23, 1894, in Richmond, London, Edward was destined for a life of duty and privilege. As the eldest son of King George V and Queen Mary, his life was paved with expectations and obligations as the first in line of succession to the British throne. Edward was groomed for leadership from his earliest days, receiving an education befitting his royal lineage. He studied at prestigious institutions such as Osborne Naval College, the Royal Navy College at Dartmouth, and the University of Oxford's Magdalen College. His time in academia was supplemented by military service as he enlisted in the Royal Navy and served on the front lines during World War I. However, during his wartime service, glimpses of Edward's disillusionment with his royal duties began to emerge. While serving on the Italian front, he reportedly quipped, quote, What difference does it make if I'm killed? The king has three other sons. This sentiment hinted at a deeper restlessness brewing within the young prince, which would later define his tumultuous reign. When the 22-year-old prince met Marguerite Alibert, his short-lived reign as a king was still 20 years in the future. Few events in the modern history of the British monarchy have stirred as much controversy and intrigue as the story of King Edward VIII. His ascension to the monarchy in 1936, following his father King George V's death, was overshadowed by scandal and controversy. At the heart of these events that would come to define his brief reign was Edward's ill-fated romance with Wallace Simpson, an American socialite whose allure captured the king's heart and ultimately led to his downfall. Their love affair, which would scandalize the nation, was fraught with obstacles from the outset. Born in 1896 in Baltimore, Maryland, Wallace Simpson was raised in relative privilege supported by her widowed mother and her mother's wealthy relatives after her father's death when she was just a baby. As she matured, Wallace possessed an innate charm and sophistication that captivated those around her. In 1931, she first crossed paths with Prince Edward at a party hosted by British nobles. At the time she was introduced to the future sovereign, she was married to her second husband, shipping executive Ernest Aldrich Simpson. Simpson left his wife to marry Wallace in 1927. She was married to her first husband, Earl Winfield Spencer Jr., a U.S. Navy aviator from 1916 to 1927. Wallace and Spencer were often separated due to his military duties. During her first marriage, she engaged in an affair with an Argentinian diplomat and an Italian count. The count later became Mussolini's son-in-law and foreign minister. 
If you're starting to suspect that nobles, diplomats, and other high-ranking members of society were engaged in a game of revolving beds, you're not too far off the mark. In fact, Wallace Simpson, who left her second husband when she began her relationship with Prince Edward, was introduced to the prince by his mistress, Thelma the Viscountess of Furness. Wallace and Prince Edward saw each other at various social soirees between their first meeting in 1931 and 1934 when they began their affair. The monarchy shunned the American divorcee. The royal family was not keen on the heir to the throne conducting an illicit affair with Wallace, who was still legally married to her second husband. To complicate the matter further, Edward was in love. Despite the objections of his family and advisors, Edward's devotion to Wallace remained unwavering. Edward became King Edward VIII on January 20, 1936, after the death of his father. He openly flaunted his relationship with Wallace, who had begun divorce proceedings. The affair between the king and Wallace was gossiped about widely in the United States, but was still a secret from British citizens. King Edward met with the Prime Minister in November 1936 and expressed his intention to marry Wallace. The PM reminded the king that the Church of England opposed remarriage after divorce. He also predicted that British citizens would never tolerate Wallace Simpson as queen. The Archbishop of Canterbury began calling for Edward to step down if he insisted on the marriage. In 1936, faced with the prospect of choosing between his duty to the crown and his love for Wallace, Edward made the fateful decision to abdicate the throne, forever altering the course of British history. The announcement was made on the night of December 11, 1936, with Edward explaining his decision to abdicate on a live BBC radio broadcast. His brother, the Duke of York, succeeded him as King George VI. After his abdication, Edward's brother, the newly crowned king, bestowed upon him the title of Duke of Windsor. In 1937, Edward and Wallace were united in marriage. Though Wallace was granted the title of Duchess of Windsor, she was denied the style of Royal Highness. January has come and gone, so it's time to fess up. How did those New Year's resolutions go? I know, you probably ate a salad for three meals a day, and that lasted about 1.5 days. Depressing. But here's one resolution that you can stick with. Smelling better naked. Can we say that on a podcast? We can? Oh, cool. Thanks to our sponsor, Lumi, you can smell good with or without clothes all year long. Lumi whole body deodorant is made to keep you odor-free from pits to belly buttons to below the belt region and anywhere you have skin. Lumi is a uniquely formulated pH-balanced deodorant that's aluminum-free, skin-safe, and proven to control odor for up to 72 hours. That's amazing. Lumi has stick and cream deodorants, odor control body wash, cleansing bars, and deodorant wipes that will keep you odor-free and smelling great. I'm a fan of Lumi's acidified body washes that are powered by a gentle alpha hydroxy acid to control odor. And they come in amazing scents, like minted cucumber and clean tangerine, or you can choose unscented. I also love to throw a pack of Lumi's deodorant wipes in my gym bag, and I know I'll smell fresh even after 45 minutes of getting my sweat on. Lumi is the first deodorant of its kind seriously safe to use anywhere on the body. Lumi is formulated with the safe and effective ingredient, mandelic acid, to stop odor before it starts. And I have a special offer for my listeners. New customers get $5 off Lumi Starter Pack with code ONCE 
at lumideodorant.com. Lumi Starter Pack is a great way to try out a variety of their whole body deodorant products. You'll get a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, and two free products of your choice, like their mini body wash and deodorant wipes, and free shipping. And as a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi Starter Pack with code ONCE at Lumi, L-U-M-E, deodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com and use code ONCE. Once Upon a Crime's Patreon members are our superfans. If you've considered joining this exclusive club but have not done so, here's an incentive to join me in another exclusive experience. Become a Patreon member from now until February 26th, and you'll have a chance to win a night out with me in San Francisco. By purchasing an annual membership at the $5 level or above, you'll be entered into a drawing for you and a friend to visit the Edgar Allan Poe Speakeasy with me on Saturday, March 2nd. The Edgar Allan Poe Speakeasy is a chilling cocktail experience that brings four of Poe's classic stories to life. As a guest of this exclusive speakeasy, you will sip on expertly crafted cocktails inspired by Poe's stories, brought to life one sip at a time. The evening promises to be a chillingly unforgettable experience. To be entered for a chance to win, go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime and join with an annual membership at $5 or above. With an annual membership, not only will you save 15% off the monthly membership fee, but you'll also be entered to win a night out in San Francisco for you, a friend, and me. If you join at the $10 level, you'll get two entries. At the $15 level, you'll be entered thrice. I like to say thrice. And if you join at the top tier of $20, you'll have four chances to win. You must be 21 years of age or older and present a valid ID at the door to enjoy the Edgar Allan Poe speakeasy. This is the first exclusive experience we've offered on Once Upon a Crime, and I'm excited to meet you and to hang out. Once again, that's patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. To get all the details about this event, go to our events page at truecrimepodcast.com. Good luck! But let us rewind to when Edward was still the 22-year-old Prince of Wales and first met Marguerite Oliver. On leave from his regiment stationed at the Western Front, the prince was partying in Paris when he met the 27-year-old courtesan and was immediately captivated. They began a torrid affair. For Edward, weary of the constraints of his stuffy and oppressive royal upbringing under King George V, Marguerite represented a breath of fresh air, a vibrant and outspoken companion whose free-willing personality mirrored his own rebellious nature. As the romance blossomed, so did their exchange of love letters. The prince foolishly let his guard down in intimate messages to his lover. Edward bared his soul to Marguerite, revealing his innermost thoughts and frustrations, including his tumultuous relationship with his father, King George V, whom he often criticized in scathing detail. However, as the summer of 1918 dawned, the flames of passion that once burned bright began to wane, eclipsed by Edward's newfound infatuation with a married woman named Frida Ward. Feeling spurned and betrayed, Marguerite confronted Edward with the damning evidence of their affair, the incriminating letters that bore witness to their indiscretions. In a desperate bid to salvage his reputation and shield the monarchy from scandal, Edward was trapped in a web of blackmail. Marguerite threatened to expose their affair 
unless he agreed to her demands. For Edward, the stakes were high, his royal lineage and honor hanging in the balance as he sought to extricate himself from the clutches of his vengeful former mistress. The prince told a friend about his troubles, quote, Oh, those bloody letters! How I curse myself! No, though, only if I can square this case, it will be the last one, as she's the only woman I've ever written to, end quote. He also described the blackmail plot, quote, I am afraid she is the hundred thousand pound or nothing type. Though I'm disappointed, I didn't think she'd turn nasty. The whole trouble is my letters, and she's not burnt one, end quote. To the prince's relief, Marguerite's threats of blackmail were soon replaced by the allure of another opportunity. She soon found herself drawn to the promises of another wealthy benefactor and ended her shakedown of the future king. Marguerite had met Charles Laurent, a wealthy Air Force officer. Laurent's family owned the famous Hotel Crillon and a large department store in Paris. Marguerite realized that if Laurent discovered she was blackmailing a prince, the scandal could sink her chances to land him as a husband. She was able to use her beauty and charm to entice the wealthy man into marrying her. But she soon found herself discontent in the marriage. Laurent was uninterested in squiring Marguerite around town, attending parties with the parasocial set, or spending a lot of money on his new bride. He was a homebody, and Marguerite was soon bored. The marriage lasted only six months. She divorced Laurent and received a sizable settlement. Now 30 years old, Marguerite could afford to live lavishly. She owned 10 horses and hired a full-time groom to care for them. She also owned two limousines and hired a full-time driver. She comfortably settled into a large apartment in an exclusive Paris neighborhood. She could have lived independently for the rest of her life, but her spending habits soon caught up with her. She decided she was in need of another husband. This time, she set her sights on an Egyptian nobleman. Ali Kamal Fami Bey, was a wealthy playboy whose family owned vast holdings in the Egyptian cotton trade. Fami's fortune rivaled that of European royalty, but he wasn't actually royal. The title Bey is an Egyptian honorary title akin to Lord, but in European social circles, he was referred to as Prince Fami. Drawn to Marguerite's vivacious spirit, an undeniable allure, Fami wasted no time pursuing her affections, despite the fact that she was nearly a decade older than the 23-year-old prince. Lavish displays of wealth and devotion marked Fami's courtship of Marguerite, precisely what she had always craved. In 1921, amidst the swirling currents of romance and intrigue, Fami proposed marriage to Marguerite. As his wife, she envisioned untold riches and a royal title. Yet for Marguerite, the prospect of becoming the wife of an Egyptian prince came with its own stipulations and compromises. To reconcile their differences before the marriage, they came to an agreement. A contract was drawn up, stipulating Marguerite's adherence to certain customs and traditions of Fami's faith and culture. These included the requirement that his wife dress modestly and the possibility that he may take multiple wives in the future. Marguerite was keen to accept his marriage proposal, but had conditions of her own. Regarding the requirement that she dress modestly and keep her face covered in public, Marguerite had the prenuptial contract amended allowing her to wear what she wished. She also would not agree to allow her husband to have multiple wives. Finally, she insisted there be a clause giving her the right to divorce Fami if the union didn't work out. They both agreed to these terms, and before the wedding, Marguerite converted to Islam, 
the couple took their vows in January 1923. Marguerite now called herself Princess Marguerite Fami. Unknown to Marguerite, her husband tore up the contract just days before the wedding. Soon after their union was legally sealed, he had another contract drawn up asserting his right to take more wives, as his religion permitted. However, soon after the honeymoon phase of the marriage ended, Marguerite, headstrong and independent by nature, found herself chafing against the constraints of her newfound role as a Muslim wife. The freedoms to which she'd been accustomed in Paris were vastly curtailed in Cairo. As the wife of an Egyptian, Marguerite's husband had the power of the law and cultural norms on his side, and Marguerite openly voiced her displeasure and anger at her predicament. The couple was often seen quarreling loudly in public. Marguerite was furious upon learning that the prenuptial contract was null and void. She was even more enraged upon learning that her husband planned to marry multiple wives. She soon discovered that her usual pattern of entering into a short-term marriage with a wealthy man, quickly ending the union, and gaining her freedom, along with a sizable financial settlement, was not an option this time. To her dismay, Marguerite learned she didn't have the legal right to request a divorce. She could only secure a divorce if her husband agreed to it, something Alifami refused to do. She began journaling details about her marriage. She accused Fami of beating her and having her every moment monitored. She wrote about her hatred for her husband and implied that he was a closeted homosexual. Her feelings of powerlessness triggered her past history of being controlled by her parents and the nuns at the Sisters of Mary, but now 100% of her rage was directed at her husband, Prince Fami. Her anger would reach a boiling point and end in a shocking act of violence. Nuffled among the bustling thoroughfare of the Strand in central London, the Savoy Hotel stood as a timeless emblem of luxury and elegance. Since its grand opening in 1889, the Savoy has played host to a dazzling array of luminaries, from royalty and celebrities to artists and socialites, each drawn to its opulent charm and storied history. As the first deluxe hotel in London, the Savoy boasted an array of groundbreaking amenities that set it apart from its contemporaries. From its innovative use of electricity to its state-of-the-art electric lifts, the Savoy epitomized the height of modernity and sophistication, attracting the creme de la creme of society. For generations, the Savoy has been a cherished destination for the British royal family, serving as a backdrop for moments of celebration and splendor. From the young princesses Elizabeth and Margaret partaking in elegant dinners and lively dances in the 1940s, to Princess Diana captivating audiences at the Savoy Centenary Ball in 1989, the hotel has remained a glittering fixture for London's elite. Yet amidst the grandeur and glamour of the Savoy, a dark chapter unfolded on a fateful summer evening in 1923, a night marred by tragedy and intrigue that would cast a shadow over the hotel's illustrious history. On Sunday, July 9, 1923, Prince Ali Fami and Princess Marguerite Fami arrived at the Savoy. As the couple settled into their luxurious accommodations, Tension simmered beneath the surface, the strains of their tumultuous marriage reaching a boiling point. As the evening unfolded, a heated argument erupted between Marguerite and her husband. Marguerite's ominous words to a passing band leader hinted at the turmoil between them. Speaking in French, she told the band leader, quote, I don't want music. My husband has threatened to kill me tonight. 
Thinking the elegantly attired woman seated with her handsome young husband was making a joke, the man responded with a smirk, Well, madame, I do hope you will still be here tomorrow. In the early hours of July 10, 1923, three gunshots rang out, piercing the silence of the hotel's corridors. Rushing to the scene, hotel employees were met with a horrible sight. Ali Fami, lifeless and slumped against the wall, his fate sealed by the barrel of a 32 caliber pistol wielded by his wife. Marguerite dropped the gun to the ground and, speaking to her murdered husband, cheerfully stated, What have I done, my dear? Fami was rushed to the hospital where he was pronounced dead. Marguerite wept in the hotel manager's office until the police arrived. As she waited, she poured her heart out to the manager, describing how terrible her life had been since she'd married the prince. Quote, Oh, sir, I have been married six months, which has been torture for me. I have suffered terribly. End quote. She did not inquire as to her husband's condition. On September 10, 1923, the Old Bailey hosted a trial that would captivate the public. Charged with the murder of her husband, Ali Fami, Marguerite Oliver stood before Justice Rigby Swift, her fate hanging in the balance. She was defended by attorneys Edward Marshall Hall and Sir Henry Curtin Bennett. Hall presented a vigorous defense of the accused. He painted her late husband as a violent and abusive tyrant whose actions had driven his wife to the brink of desperation. The defense claimed that Alifami had attempted to strangle his wife on the night of the shooting. As the quarrel continued in the hotel room, it was said that Fami produced a gun and came at Marguerite threatening to shoot her. In self-defense, she grabbed the pistol and managed to wrestle it from him. In the chaos and terror of that evening, Marguerite had pulled the trigger of the Browning 32 caliber pistol, ending Fami's life to save her own. Hall cast Marguerite as a victim of her controlling and abusive husband. He capitalized on the racist sentiments prevalent at that time towards Middle Easterners by Europeans and portrayed Fami as an amoral, depraved, violent man. He also, not so subtly, accused Prince Fami and his private secretary of being in a homosexual relationship. Addressing the age gap between Fami and Marguerite, Hall told the jury, quote, Yes, he was only 23 years old, but he was given to a life of debauchery and was obsessed with his sexual prowess, end quote. He said Fami's culture caused him to consider his wife as property, Using language and sentiments considered blatantly racist today, Hall concluded his closing argument by stating, quote, Although he may have acquired the outward signs of urbanity and sophistication, Ali Fami was forever an Oriental under the skin. End quote. Marguerite testified in her own defense, describing her marriage as worse than prison, being controlled, locked away, and watched constantly by her husband's manservant, even while she was in a state of undress. She told the jury that one day while she was in her dressing room, she heard a noise and pulled aside the hanging that screened an alcove. To her horror, she, quote, saw crouching there one of her husband's numerous, ugly, black, half-civilized manservants who obeyed his every word like slaves, end quote. Marguerite screamed for help, but when her husband arrived, she said he just laughed, saying of the servant that he ordered to spy on her, quote, he's nobody, he does not count but he has the right to come here or anywhere you may go and tell me what you are doing, end quote. On September 14, 1923, 
the jury acquitted Marguerite Elibert of all charges after less than an hour of deliberation. According to accounts from Andrew Rose's 2013 book, The Woman Before Wallace, Prince Edward, The Paris Courtesan, and The Perfect Murder, Marguerite's escape from justice was orchestrated by powerful forces seeking to protect the sanctity of the royal family. Rose uncovered evidence that explained how Marguerite Elibert got away with shooting her husband in the back three times and successfully arguing it was self-defense. Upon her arrest for murder, Marguerite contacted the royal court and requested their help in securing her release. She had a very powerful bargaining chip, the letters from Prince Edward she'd kept hidden away for years. The scandal that would ensue should the Prince of Wales's relationship with an accused murderess be revealed was just a drop in the bucket compared to how scandalized the royal family would be should the intimate letters come to light. Marguerite knew this and played her trump card now. Through intermediaries, a deal was struck. In exchange for Marguerite returning all of the letters in her possession, her freedom would be guaranteed. In addition, Marguerite wanted it stipulated that her past history as a teenage sex worker and the fact that she'd borne a daughter out of wedlock when she was just 16 be kept out of the trial. The agreement was made, and Marguerite had the letters hidden in her home in Cairo returned. Her acquittal was all but guaranteed because of her attorney's ability to portray his client as a high-class lady with an unblemished record whose only mistake was in marrying an Egyptian prince who turned out to be a violent, amoral monster. Prince Edward was never mentioned in press coverage of the case or at the murder trial. As a precaution, he was sent to Canada on a royal visit while the trial was ongoing. One detail about this case points to the possibility that Marguerite Alibert premeditated the murder of her husband. It was reported that she and Fami were in London because of a medical procedure Marguerite was scheduled to undergo. She insisted on having the procedure done in England over her husband's objections. If Marguerite killed a nobleman in Egypt, she would face a mandatory death sentence. If she knew this, then it makes sense that she'd make sure to be out of the country if she planned to kill her husband and claim it was self-defense. In addition, Marguerite was counting on assistance from her powerful connection in London, her former lover, the Prince of Wales. She must have considered herself lucky to have kept the embarrassing letters from the prince all these years that now could be used as blackmail. The letters were a threat, not just to the prince, but also the entire royal family, whom she knew would do everything in their power to keep the letters from coming to light. Marguerite Alibert, acquitted of murder, returned to her life in Paris. She lived comfortably on the money she'd received from her past relationships, but to her dismay, she discovered she had no claim on Ali Fami's fortune. He was such a young man when he died that he hadn't yet seen fit to leave a will. Egyptian law didn't recognize a wife as a legal heir unless her husband specifically named her, perhaps because he may have several wives and the division of assets would therefore be more complicated. Marguerite's daughter Raymond and her family resided near Marguerite in Paris. She spent a great deal of time with her daughter and grandchildren and enjoyed family life. Her life retreated into relative obscurity. Her once glamorous existence reduced to whispers and rumors in the salons of Parisian society. Still attracted to the limelight, Marguerite would later appear in some minor French films. Ironically, in one, she played the role of an Egyptian wife the very role she had resisted in real life and that had led her to commit murder. 
On January 2, 1971, Marguerite Alibert passed away in Paris at the age of 80. Years after her death, her grandson discovered paperwork among her possessions, which revealed that his grandmother had quietly married and divorced wealthy men five more times without her family's knowledge. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I'll be co-hosting a podcast meetup with the Generation Y podcast on Thursday, February 22nd in San Jose, California. Come out and meet me, Justin, and Aaron, grab a drink, take some selfies, and talk true crime. No tickets are required, so feel free to invite friends and family who love true crime. Get all the details at truecrimepodcast.com or on our Facebook page. You have until February 26th to enter the drawing to win a night out in San Francisco with me. We'll enjoy cocktails and a show at the amazing Edgar Allan Poe Speakeasy. To have a chance to win, register for an annual Patreon membership at the $5 level or above. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to find out more and enter. Good luck! Once Upon a Crime was written and produced by me, Esther Sanchez Ludlow. Research for this episode was provided by Emma Bataglia. My administrative and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Until next time, be good to one another. <laughs>